Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst, except sometimes, like <laughs> every once a month when we do a horror-adjacent movie as voted on by our patrons over on Patreon. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Uh, I'm making my way through. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing okay. Yeah. Awesome. This is, as Ben said, our bonus episode for March 2022, uh, where we focus on a horror-adjacent episode. Normally, these come out on the last Saturday of that month. As you can tell, it is not the last Saturday of the month. Things got away from us. It's been a busy month. I've been super busy at work. Sarah's been super busy at work. We've also been super busy with like Life. real estate things. Oh, yeah. Life. Yeah, there's just there's just too much going on, really. Yeah, so it, this is late, but that's okay. It's a bonus episode. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what are we watching today, Ben? What did our dear patrons vote for well um the poll this month was consisting of movies that like got close to being voted for in previous polls like runner-ups i guess the winner in like what like a landslide pretty much pretty much a landslide was 1944's arsenic and old lace which um long-time listeners of the show will know that there was like a a good like period of films in the 1940s where we would like mention this movie or the play that it's based on like quite frequently because it just sort of touched on so much a lot of things all the time yeah mainly because of boris karloff mainly because of boris karloff have you seen this movie before okay this is one of my mom's favorite movies mainly because of Cary grant being in it um she tried to show it to me once. I was like a teen and I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it, Ben. So I'm a little nervous about watching it. <laughs> How people might judge you if you don't like it. Yeah, like for full context, um, I was like a surly emo teen. Mm -hmm. uh, not in the mood for comedy. And it's also like a brand of comedy that I certainly did not have any kind of taste for at that age. So I'm hoping that, you know, my tastes have evolved a bit to be able to stand watching this movie. So you haven't tried it again since then? No. So it's been like 15 years? Yeah. Okay. What about for you? Um, I haven't seen this in a while. I think the last time I saw it would have been like, I don't know, probably on TCM while I was still living with my parents. So like... I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, hard to say. I do know that you are not a big fan of screwball comedy. Yeah, I don't like bringing up baby. Yeah. Um, and I would say that this is, at least my memory of it, is in line with my response to bringing up baby. Mm. I don't like bringing up baby either. I find it like a really hard time to sit through. Um, it's just like really grating for me. Um, so you and I agree with that. That being said, I think there are 
it's hard to sometimes draw the line where like romantic comedy ends and screwball comedy begins because there are movies that you do like that are sort of in like screwball adjacent territory yeah like i I don't know if it happened one night it happened one night close happened one night is sort of the classic um romantic comedy very fair but um you really like his girl friday i really like that which is like definitely at least screwball adjacent Mm -hmm. i don't know if they have like a different genre category or not but like those kind of um I think by the early 1960s, they were sort of calling them sex comedies, but like the kind of um, like Rock Hudson, Doris Day kind of stuff that um, like Down With Love is homaging. Yeah. Pillow Talk. Yeah. I like those. Yeah. I don't know if those count as screwball comedies or if they're like too late in the era to be like part of like classic screwball comedies. I think the thing about when a screwball comedy becomes grating for Mm. me is when I just need people to just like stop and breathe and explain themselves Mm. and the other person to sit and breathe and listen. And we take turns going around the circle for that. (laughs) You know, I just (laughs) communication. Well, I mean, thinking for myself about like, say his girl Friday versus bringing up baby. For me, the difference is I have to like at least one of the characters. Mm -hmm. Rosalind Russell's character in His Girl Friday is likable. You kind of like are cheering for her, whether it's to get away from Cary Grant and go get married or to like get her scoop or like whatever. Um, You're kind of on her side. And the problem with like bringing up baby is that at least for me, um, like neither Cary Grant nor Catherine Hepburn are likable. They are both infuriating. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, can be a problem for me. Some like it hot. Is That's another comedy that you quite like a bit. That's sort yeah. of screwball adjacent for sure. But I feel like, you know, in all these cases, um, like when I was first watching Arsenic and Old Lace when I was 15, I like didn't quite understand the allure of Cary Grant I was Mm. like yeah he's handsome but I don't see what the big deal is well that's certainly changed in the last 15 years (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing like that yeah it's like because I think I in my brain at that age I was thinking of Cary Grant in like North by Northwest Mm, sure um which is a very different sort of era of Cary Grant yeah so I think that's also probably why I had a challenge when I was 15, Mm. but as you said, it's like 15, I guess technically like 17 years later, like my tastes have grown and developed and matured. Yeah. And you're definitely more of a fan of Cary Grant now. Yes, this is true. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's see how it goes. Um, Arsenic and Old Lace is definitely a classic and it's definitely an exemplar of like a specific brand of humor. Mm -hmm. Um, So as I kind of alluded to this film is famously based on a play and that play came up a lot in scream scene episodes from around 1941 to 1944. So why don't we start with talking about the play since that is so important to kind of understanding this movie. The play is by playwright Joseph Kesselring. He was born in 1902 to Henry and Frances Kesselring in New York And from a young age, Joseph had a passion for the theater. 
he got his foot in the door onto the stage, I guess you could say, as first a boy soprano in the chorus and then developing into an adult tenor. When he was 20 years old, he moved to Kansas to teach vocal music and direct stage productions at Bethel College. It's at this point that he started writing his own plays, and at 22, he chose to head back to New York to pursue creative outlets like acting, playwriting, and writing short stories, writing vaudevilles, um, all of that. He definitely had more of a penchant for like comedies and musicals than serious drama. He'd meet and marry a woman named Charlotte, um, they would get married, and then at 32, he left the stage to uh, playwright full-time, beginning with the play in 1933 titled Aggie Appleby, Maker of Men. Okay. Um, it premiered off-Broadway, and he followed that up with 1935's There is Wisdom in Women, 1937's Crosstown, 1941's Arsenic and Old Lace, and then um, 1951's Four twelves are 48. So it took 10 years for the arsenic and old lace money to dry up. <laughs> well, okay, here's the thing. He wrote about a total of 12 plays, but the only one that you will have ever heard of is arsenic and old lace. Mm. In fact, <laughs> most of these other works had lukewarm at best of a <laughs> reception. They were all considered by and large to be formulaic and old hat. Sure. Arsenic, on the other hand, uh, was hugely popular and hugely praised. Uh, so one critic, a uh, contemporary critic named Brooks Atkinson, said, quote, Nothing in Mr. Kesselring's record has prepared us for the humor and ingenuity in arsenic. End quote. So why this one hit throughout his career? Hmm. You're, you're giving me a look like there's an answer to that question. There is an answer. Um, Arsenic and Old Lace was a, quote, collaboration, end quote, between Kesselring and the writing duo Howard Lindsay and Russell Krause. Hmm. Are you familiar with the writing duo Lindsay and Krause? The names sound vaguely familiar. I didn't know they had anything to do with this play, though. Yes. So... Lindsay and Krauss, um, like I said, are a very famous theater writing duo. Their very first collaboration was in 1935's Anything Goes. Hmm. They hit the big fame and money with uh, their second collaboration, 1939's Life with Father. Okay. Um, which holds the record for the longest running non-musical on Broadway. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. So, with Life with Father, they became big names and got big money. Um, so, Howard's wife, her name is Dorothy Stickney. We've actually seen her in 1944's The Uninvited. Oh, interesting. They were married in 1927, and then she starred in Life with Father. Um, so, Dorothy's kind of a big deal. And so, Kesselring sent her the script to um, Arsenic and Old Lace. At the time, it was called Bodies in Our Cellar. Kesselring wanted to see if she would star. Sure. So she read the script and she enjoyed it. So she shared it with her husband, who then brought in Krauss and said, let's be producers. Got it. So 
So at this time, as I said, the script was called Bodies in Our Cellar and was apparently, according to Dorothy, um, fairly uneven. And uh, there were even some moments where things were considered kind of more in bad taste. I mean, I feel like the thing to me whenever I read about Arsenic and Old Lace is that like what made it special in 1941 is that like joking about murder and like macabre subject matter was like a relatively new idea. Mm. Um, like the, like the, the fact that the play like bumps up against bad taste was like the thing that made it like daring or whatever. Okay. So along with producing Lindsay and Krauss practically rewrote the play. Mm. They changed um, situations. They added new characters, but they continued to give all the credit to Kesselring. Mm. Now, I don't want to paint Kesselring as not having done any work here. In writing Bodies in Our Cellar, as it was known at the time, he researched a Connecticut criminal law case of um, Amy Archer Gilligan, who was convicted in 1917 for murder. Archer Gilligan apparently ran a boarding house for the elderly between 1908 and 1916, where um, 66 people died, (laughs) including... Her first and second husbands. Okay. <laughs> Not suspicious at all. Not suspicious. Well, um, yeah. So basically the grift was um, people who were elderly or handicapped would come to stay at her house. They could either pay a lump sum that's like a life payment mm. and get like a deal with that. Or they could pay month by month or whatever. Mm-hmm. If people paid that lump sum, about a month later they happened to die i see yes after some people got suspicious they did autopsies on some of the people who died including her second husband and um in the case of her second husband they found enough arsenic in his stomach to kill several people (laughs) so she was charged with murder for that specific person though it's widely believed that you know she killed all these other people because uh the mortality rate at her boarding house was significantly higher than everyone else. Mm. I don't know why I did that in an Italian accent, but it was significantly higher. Kesselring investigated these case files when writing his play and then spun his yarn out from there. So Arsenic and Old Lace ran for 1,444 Broadway performances, Yeah. 1,337 performances in London, and then two years later was adapted for today's film. Sort Um, of. Two years later is is sort of true. We'll get there. <laughs> um, Kesselring would continue to write, though, like I said before, he had no other major hits. Um, and he died in 1967 at age 65. Uh, now, his widow, Charlotte, collaborated with the National Arts Club to create the Joseph Kesselring Prize in 1980, which is basically like a prize and scholarship to upcoming playwrights in the club. Hmm. Lindsay and Krauss, for their part, continued seeing success in playwriting and producing, uh, such as with uh, 1945's State of the Union. Oh, yeah. Which I mentioned because I know the director of this movie goes on to do that film. Yes. Um, 1956's Happy Hunting, a little unknown play, uh, 1959's The Sound of Music. Sure. Um, Russell Krauss died in 1966, and Howard Lindsay would pass away two years later in 1968. A big part of why Arsenic and Old Lace had so much success 
is because of the metatextual nature of one of the characters. Yes. Who, um, this, this character, his name is Jonathan Brewster. And, uh, in the play, he goes and he gets uh, plastic surgery to look more like Boris Karloff. And this character is played by Boris Karloff. Yes. And that is why this play has come in and out of scream scene episodes during this time. Yes, because Karloff couldn't appear in films for like an extended period of time while he was playing in Arsenic and Old Lace. And like movies around this time would reference his role in Arsenic and Old Lace. It was just like a lot of stuff in regards to it. Yeah. As far as the plot of Arsenic and Old Lace goes, so the Brewster family are all maniacs, uh, except for the normie Mortimer, who is engaged to marry the next-door neighbor, Elaine, who is the daughter of the local minister. Mortimer's family consists of his two spinster aunts, um, who are murdering local old men with arsenic. Mortimer's brother, Teddy, who believes that he is Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, his brother, Jonathan Boris Karloff, who, as I said, has had plastic surgery by a Dr. Einstein, and Jonathan is planning to kill Mortimer. Ah. Eventually, Mortimer gets his aunts and Teddy to uh, go live in a living home where, like, they won't be maniacs and they'll be taken care of. And then Jonathan gets taken away by police. You know, it's all a bunch of hijinks and such. Sure. Right. Yeah. So there's not much to the plot. Sure. He has to keep, like, his family kind of away from, like, the father of his fiance, like, yeah. yeah. Hijinks ensue. Okay. Hijinks ensue. Got it. So as you mentioned, the play was a big hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of inevitable that a Hollywood adaptation would come along, um, as is sort of the way things were with big hit plays back then. And specifically, Arsenic and Old Lace caught the attention of director Frank Capra. So Frank Capra was born Francesco Rosario Capra in Sicily in 1897. He was the youngest of seven children. His family emigrated to the United States in 1903 and settled in Los Angeles. He attended the California Institute of Technology studying chemical engineering. Um, He was the first in his family to have a college education. He fought in the First World War, which claimed the life of his father, and he was medically discharged when he caught the Spanish flu. Mm. Living at home, he struggled to work due to chronic pains that were ultimately found to have been from an undiagnosed burst appendix. Oh my god. He could have died, Ben. Yes. After his recovery, Capra became a naturalized U.S. citizen under the name Frank Russell Capra. And he became something of a drifter, working a variety of odd jobs throughout the country. Capra sought a way of breaking into the film industry, eventually managing to do it by applying for positions at various, like, small studios and lying about his level of experience (laughs) in the film industry. Uh, He eventually got a niche working as a gag writer for silent film comedians. And eventually, this moved him into feature film production as a writer. Capra was hired by Harry Cohn of the Poverty Row studio Columbia to help the company move from producing shorts and two-reel comedies into producing feature films. 
Capra was an early embracer of sound at a time when Hollywood felt threatened by the new technology, and this gave him the confidence to direct a string of successful feature films for Columbia, becoming the studio's top director. In 1934, Capra's romantic comedy It Happened One Night became the first film to win all five of what's considered to be like the major Oscars, which is to say Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Actress. In 1936, Capra began to add social messages and moral themes to his plot lines, starting with Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which won Capra a second Best Director Oscar. His third Best Director Oscar came from 1938's You Can't Take It With You, which also won Best Picture. 1939 saw these message pictures reach a peak with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. As a film addressing corruption in the U.S. government, it was hugely controversial at the time. Sort of like, how dare you say that the U.S. government might be corrupt? Um, It was also seen as like, hey, you can't show this movie overseas. Like, Mm -hmm. it'll make people think America sucks. But it was nominated for 11 Oscars, although it did not win a ton of them, mostly because 1939 was a year with, like, a lot of other big movies. Yeah. Like Gone with the Wind, for instance. (laughs) Um, Now, Capra's reputation for gentle humor, social commentary, and good old-fashioned American values and fondness for the common man had become such a trademark that by 1941, he was really looking to make a film that would just be pure escapist entertainment with like no message, no attempts at saving the world, just like a fun film. There was a term used to describe his movies that was called Capricorn. Oh, sure. For just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, When did the movie Sullivan's Travels come out? Sullivan's Travels came out in 1941, Mm -hmm. but it's also semi-autobiographical about the director of that film, Preston Sturgis. Okay. Um, not simply like, it's not meant to be about Frank Capra. Okay. For context, um, it's about a director who uh, wants to make meaningful films and then he hits hard times and realizes that escapism is also valid. Yes. So uh, Capra really wanted to find like a good basis to make his like fun escapist film and he felt that he had found it after seeing the play arsenic and old lace uh, which he called an everything goes rip-roaring comedy about murder so he wanted to go make the movie uh, and that's when he discovered that the play had like incited a bidding war in hollywood and had been bought by warner brothers Uh, so he had to go to warner brothers and work with them to produce the film even though like columbia was usually his home studio Mm -hmm. the script was adapted to the screen by julius and philip epstein twin screenwriters who were on contract for warner brothers and who'd later adapt another play into the hit film casablanca i love that they were twins do you think they like someone would like start the sentence in, on the typewriter and then pass it off and then the other twin would like finish? I'm sure they hated getting that joke every <laughs> time. So the script needed to make a number of changes to the play due to the production code. The Hayes office asked that they consider changing the title and maybe like not reference arsenic so that 
people wouldn't know how to poison other people with arsenic. Um, that was sort of a bridge too far, and they didn't take that suggestion. But some of the things they changed included toning down the sort of sexual eagerness and frustration of the newlyweds, who in the play, like, clearly want to bone down, but, like, murders keep happening and hijinks, so they can't. <laughs> uh, so that got toned down. Um, also, they had to alter one of the play's most famous lines to eliminate a instance of foul language, which I, I guess I'll talk about after the movie, maybe because the line is a spoiler. Okay. Um, but they also removed several scenes from the play, uh, including the ending um, because the way that the play ends is, as you mentioned, uh, Mortimer puts his aunts in like a, a home um, so that like they won't get into any more trouble. But the final scene of the play is them um, like spiking the tea of like the administrator of the place with arsenic. <laughs> um, so that had to be cut because you can't have like murders that go unpunished in code movies. Capra felt that he could do the movie in four weeks at $400,000 for the budget. Um, because in his mind, like you could shoot the whole thing on one set Nobody really goes anywhere. It's a small cast. You know, you could keep it really contained. Um, he could really use those like poverty row days as like experience to make this film. Uh, but that dream was short lived. Uh, the budget quickly ballooned to $1.2 million, um, which he probably should have seen coming just for like the salaries that people commanded. So it had cost Warner Brothers $125,000 to buy the rights to the play. Uh, Frank Capra himself earned $100,000 uh, as director. Um, he had originally wanted Bob Hope to play Mortimer, but Hope was unavailable, and Warner Brothers wanted him to use Cary Grant. So Cary Grant was cast at a salary of $160,000. I'm not good at math, but I feel like we've already hit the four hundred there. Hmm. Um, then there was the fact that Capra wanted to use um, Gina Dare, Josephine Hull, and John Alexander from the play. They played the two aunts and Teddy Brewster, respectively. And in order to use them, he had to pay the Broadway producers $25,000 a piece to use each of those cast members, who would then be given leaves of absence from the play to go shoot the movie. And, you know, they'd get replaced by... Yeah. Understudies. Then each one of those three cast members made $10,000 as their salary for appearing in the film. Alan Jocelyn, who plays Mortimer in the play, uh, stayed behind, as did Boris Karloff. For years, uh, Gina Dare and Josephine Hull thought that Karloff had been so gracious in remaining behind to anchor the stage play while they got to go do the movie. But the truth was that the producers refused to let their star player exit the show because the role of Jonathan Brewster had been written for Karloff. Like the point of the role is that Karloff is playing it and it's like a cute wink, wink, nudge, nudge mm -hmm. meta thing. So they kind of felt like the whole show would fall apart without Karloff. And so they refused to let him go do the movie. Later when Karloff would you know, stop performing and the play would continue. They had Eric von Stroheim take yes. over the role. And after Eric von Stroheim, uh, Bella Lugosi did it. So Karloff forever resented this. 
Um, so rather than it being some gracious thing that he did, that he was such a nice guy, like he was pissed off about this for the rest of his life that he did not get to go do this movie. Um, he was replaced by actor Raymond Massey, who was paid $25,000. And then we also have in the role of Dr. Einstein, Peter Lorre, who joined the cast at $13,000. Uh, in addition to, sorry, did I say that the rights to the play were 125,000 earlier? I think so. They were 175,000. <laughs> um, also the play's producers negotiated for 15% of the film's profits. This is so expensive and they haven't even started filming. Right. Um, yeah. The producers really like took Warner brothers for a ride here, which like, you know, good for them, I guess. But like, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, they knew that they had a hot property on. Um, additionally, the producers were afraid that a movie version, which would play in theaters across America, would take business away from the Broadway play. You know, why go all the way to New York and pay Broadway ticket prices when I can pay a dime to see it in the local movie hall, right? So they negotiated that the film could not be released while the play was still running. Now, Warner Brothers figured this was no big deal. The play had started its run on January 10th, 1941, and filming for uh, the movie version started in late October of 1941. So, like, the play's already been running for 10 months. So, like, we're fine. Yeah. The original shooting schedule was four weeks, as I mentioned, on that original budget of 400000 but just as the budget had ballooned to 1.2 million, so the shooting schedule extended to eight weeks from the original planned four. Now, uh, the way that Capra shot the film is they built one complete set for the entire house that was like a full, full house. Um, you could do 360 degree camera moves in it. You could go to other floors and other rooms um, because some scenes were deleted from the film. There were scenes shot in rooms that never appear in the finished movie. Like they built the whole house for it. And Capra thought that would make things like cheaper and easier because you never had to go anywhere. Um, but um, the screenwriters added scenes in the adaptation that like, took place in other places other than the house in order to like open it up. Sure. Um, so that added time and money. Um, additionally, Capra's shooting methodology ended up causing the shooting schedule to double in that way because he developed this methodology where they would spend a day shooting a scene and then Capra would watch the rushes for that scene the next day. And then he would plan out all of the reshoots and pickups needed for that scene. And they would shoot those that day um, so that they wouldn't have to redo the lighting setups and things, which essentially meant that um, he was shooting each scene for two days, um, which effectively doubled the length of the shooting schedule. Mm -hmm. So things started to get expensive uh, and take time. Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Capra had wanted Bob Hope, to play the role of Mortimer, but uh, Warner Brothers wanted Cary Grant. So Cary Grant is who Capra used. So let's talk a little bit about Cary Grant. Awesome. So Cary Grant was born Archibald Leach in Bristol, England in 1904. His parents worked at a clothes factory. His father was an alcoholic and his mother suffered from clinical depression. 
His older brother died of tuberculosis before he was a year old, and his mother blamed herself for that and became um, mentally unable to show or receive affection. When Archibald was nine, his mother was placed in a mental hospital, and his father told his son that she had died. Uh, He would not learn the truth that his mother was alive until he was 31 years old when his dad told him on his deathbed. Was she still alive at that point? Yes. Yes. Okay. He eventually would go visit her and stuff, and I think eventually got her out of the mental hospital, but that was like several years down the line. Yeah. No, that's fucked up. So Archie attended school on scholarship, uh, where his good looks and athletic skills made him popular. Ain't that just the way. Uh, although he was poorly behaved and academically negligent. Ain't, ain't that just the way? <laughs> he began hanging around Bristol theaters backstage to escape from his home life. And when he was 14, he purposely got himself expelled from school so that he could join a traveling dance troupe and leave Bristol to travel the UK. Now, this uh, acrobatic dance troupe uh, was invited to do a tour of the United States in 1920. And once they played around in New York for a little while and it was time to go back to the UK, Archie decided to just sort of stay behind in the US and join the vaudeville circuit. He performed for years before finally signing with the William Morris Talent Agency in 1928. They started getting him roles in Broadway shows, uh, where it was frequently remarked that he was a poor actor saved by great natural charm. (laughs) He definitely has a lot of natural charisma. He began to develop a reputation as a good romantic leading man, uh, though he had no luck with women in his personal life. He later admitted that what drew him to acting was a great need to be liked. Sure. Uh, He sort of started to develop a persona of being this like suave, handsome, um, erudite kind of guy. You know, he didn't have a lot of education. He came from very low uh, class beginnings. So he would spend a lot of time hanging around higher class people and emulating them until he could kind of like talk the talk, walk the walk, you know. He earned himself a screen test with Paramount in 1931 which led to a contract and a name change to Cary Grant. Grant's charm and masculine glamour led to him being cast as suave playboy types, which led to his breakout roles in the Mae West pictures She Done Him Wrong and I'm No Angel. Yeah, I'm No Angel is very good (laughs) um, because Cary Grant isn't Cary Grant yet, Mm -hmm. but he's becoming Cary Grant. It's very interesting. Also, Mae West is amazing, so. Unfortunately, his follow-up films to these Mae West pictures were failures, and that led to him not renewing his Paramount contract in 1936 and instead deciding to sign short-term non-exclusive contracts with studios like RKO and Columbia, where he would be um, able to kind of pick his projects a bit more so like instead of signing with a studio where it's like oh i'm gonna work for you on salary for seven years it was like oh i'll come do three pictures for you over the course of four years or Mm -hmm. something like that he continued to struggle as his natural charm was not enough to overcome his deficiencies as an actor but then in 1937 he appeared in the awful truth a play adaptation, but also a film where he was allowed a great deal of leeway for comedic improvisation on set. 
Um, so you know that thing that all comedies do now where they just kind of let the actors ad lib yeah. forever and then they just kind of pick the best jokes in uh, editing? Yeah. That's Cary Grant's whole deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's why he's so good in His Girl Friday. Right. Yeah. He's he's He just improvs. Being on the vaudeville circuit probably like honed those skills for him. Exactly. Um, so The Awful Truth was a huge hit. And that led to like movie stardom. Finally, a string of successes for Grant. There was Bringing Up Baby in 1938, Gunga Din in 1939, His Girl Friday in 1940, as well as The Philadelphia Story that same year, where everyone won Oscars for that movie except for him. In 1940, it has to sting. It did. Uh, it really did. In 1941, he starred in Suspicion for Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, that would be the first of many collaborations with Hitchcock over his career. Uh, Hitchcock would later say that Cary Grant was the only actor he truly loved working with. Probably because he takes really good direction. Probably. <laughs> but it was also often remarked that like Cary Grant was. Um, like shockingly intelligent. Um, someone uh, shockingly intelligent. Yeah. Someone um, like he got really into business later in life, um, which I'll get to in a second, but like he would invest in stuff and he wouldn't just be like, Oh yeah, here's my money. And like, thanks for the title and buy. He would like go to board of directors meetings for all the companies that he invested in and like actively like take part in them. And it was remarked that like Cary Grant didn't need a computer because he had one in his brain. Like he was, he was very, very smart. Um, You know, I've heard that like if someone is doing poorly in school and isn't, you know, able to like pay attention or whatever, sometimes it's because they're bored because they, you know, jump to the end or something in solving mm-hmm. a question. So I wonder if that's the case with him. Potentially. He was, however, nominated for his first Oscar in 1941 for the film Penny Serenade. Um, Grant would never actually win a competitive Oscar. Um, he would only get a Lifetime Achievement Award uh, several decades down the line. Now, starting in 1932, uh, Grant had been living with actor Randolph Scott. Uh, and actually, before he lived with Scott, he was living with um, Hollywood fashion designer Ori Kelly who everyone knew Ori Kelly was gay. However, as the culture around films became more conservative with the implementation of the production code, it started to become important to the studios that Grant uh, date women in this period, be seen going on dates and being with women. And there was definitely, definitely a lot of spin around him and Randolph Scott as being like these two eligible bachelors and man about towns who happen to like share a bachelor pad together. (laughs) You know, they're just best buds who happen to like, just, you know, enjoy each other's company so much that they share this swimming pool. And it's just so unfortunate that their house is so small that they have to share a bedroom. (laughs) Grant's first marriage would be in 1934. It would last little over a year before ending very acrimoniously in divorce in 1935. Uh, He had other relationships in the 1930s with women that were also equally short-lived. He basically had no long-term successful relationships with women until after he stopped living with Scott in 1944. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. So Cary Grant, 1941, shooting begins on arsenic and old lace. Um, He did not enjoy working on this movie. Um, He did not like it. Uh, Capra's desire for a rip-roaring, zany comedy led to him directing the actors to go 
way, way, way over the top in every take. Just give me your broadest acting, your broadest comedic take. Just go way big with it. And Grant felt that his performance in the movie was terrible as a result, and he would later name this his least favorite movie that he ever appeared in. I've heard that. Mm -hmm. Um, He would instruct that of his $160,000 salary, $100,000 be given to World War II relief efforts and $10,000 to his agent. So he only kept $50,000 for himself. Because Cary Grant got cast as Mortimer, Mortimer's part is very much expanded from what it is in the play. The play's a little bit more of an ensemble, but Mortimer is definitely made like the lead character in the film. Playing Mortimer's fiance in the film version is actress Priscilla Lane, who was born in 1915 in Iowa, the youngest of five daughters. Four of those five became actresses, Leota Lane, Lola Lane, Rosemary Lane, and Priscilla Lane. Um, They would appear together in the movie's Uh, let's see, four daughters, four wives, four mothers, and I think there was a fourth one, but I don't remember the name of it. (laughs) They they really missed the mark if there isn't a fourth one, you know? Uh, Priscilla was sort of judged to be like the funny one of the four, uh, and Capra actually requested her uh, for the role in this movie. Josephine Hull, who was 64 years old when this film was shot is reprising her role from the play as aunt abby and gina dare who was 68 is reprising her role as aunt martha gina dare was originally from i believe hamilton ontario in canada and she had first met Cary grant 20 years earlier when he was a young vaudeville performer and she nursed him back to health after the 17 year old had become very very ill because he was just a 17 year old on his own wandering around the u.s doing vaudeville oh my god what a reunion Mm -hmm. i love this replacing boris karloff in the film was actor raymond massey who was born in toronto in 1896 he was the son of an extremely wealthy family that had made their money um they had a tractor company their company made tractors they were very rich um he fought in world war one for the canadian army Uh, In fact, he also fought for the Canadian Army again in World War II. He enlisted the second time around. Um, And although his wealthy family was very reluctant to allow him to do this, he persuaded them to let him pursue an acting career after the First World War, and he began appearing on stage in 1922. His film debut was in 1928, and he was a well-known character actor through the 1930s. He was nominated for an Oscar for his performance as Abraham Lincoln in 1940's Abe Lincoln in Illinois, after having starred in the original play version of that. Um, And he would actually play Lincoln an additional four times in his career. Um, He would later say that he was the only actor ever typecast for playing a president. Um, And it's sort of, you know, ironic because he's Canadian, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, His older brother, Vincent Massey, was the very first governor general of Canada to be born in Canada. Oh, neat. Peter Lorre's appearance in this film uh, was sort of coming in the middle of his like busy Warner Brothers period. Um, You know, he shot this after having appeared in the Maltese Falcon earlier in 1941. And in 1942, he would appear in Casablanca. Um, Other movies that he appeared in around this time that would be familiar to Scream Scene listeners as they are horror adjacent titles would be um, The Invisible Agent for Universal and The Boogeyman Will Get You for Columbia. 
So completion of filming was delayed a week. Uh, So it actually ended up taking nine weeks to shoot. And that was due to the December 7th attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese that launched the United States into World War II. The result of this was that Frank Capra enlisted in the army on December 12th, 1941, because, well, you know, he felt that he had done all these patriotic movies. So gotta, gotta put your money where your mouth is, I suppose. Um, But shooting resumed and was completed on December 16th. Cinematography for Arsenic and Old Lace was by Warner Brothers stalwart Saul Polito, who had been working as a DOP since 1914 and had shot 42nd Street, Gold Diggers of 1933, The Petrified Forest, The Adventures of Robin Hood, and The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, among many, many other Warner Brothers titles. Capra worked to edit the film with editor Daniel Mandel through January of 1942. Mandel would go on to win three Oscars for editing on the films Pride of the Yankees, The Best Years of Our Lives, and The Apartment. The Epsteins felt that Capra had pushed the actors too broad in the comedy, and this was sort of coming out in the edit. So Capra assured them that he would do reshoots to tone down the film, uh, but then on February 11th, he reported for military duty. and uh, <laughs> Peaced out. Peaced out, indeed. Um, picture was locked. Uh, music for the film is by Max Steiner, who is generally considered to be one of the greatest composers of the golden age of Hollywood. Um, he composed tons and tons and tons of movie scores, but um, they would include films like King Kong, Of Human Bondage, A Star is Born, the 1937 version, Dark Victory, Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, now Voyager, Mildred Pierce, um, The Beast with Five Fingers, The Big Sleep, uh, Key Largo, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The Fountainhead, The Searchers, many, many more. So Warner Brothers initially announced a September 30th, 1942 release date for Arsenic and Old Lace because the picture was finished in February of 1942 and Warner Brothers figured, you know, it's kind of set around Halloween, has like spooky macabre vibes, so let's release it September 30th so that it's out in theaters for October. But Arsenic and Old Lace, the play, just kept running and running and (laughs) running. And as you said, it closed after 1,444 performances on June 17th, 1944. So this movie just sat on the shelf. So that's why when you said this movie was made like two years after the play started, it's like, no, no, no. It was made the same year the play started. It just sat waiting for years uh, for this super popular play to um to finally yeah exactly so yeah shot in 1941 not released until 1944 now in that time uh that it had been sitting on the shelf capper was assigned to the staff of the u.s army chief of staff general george c marshall to produce a series of films called why we fight Uh, which were so acclaimed that they were not just shown to military personnel as intended, but actually released to theaters in the U.S. and the U.K. and the Soviet Union. There were 12 of them in all, uh, though they weren't really shown much after the war ended. Yeah. Because there really wasn't much point to it. 
Um, Capra would not return to making Hollywood feature films until 1946's It's a Wonderful Life, which was a box office failure. Cary Grant, meanwhile, uh, in 1942, married Barbara Hutton, one of the wealthiest women in the world, uh, a massive heiress to a huge fortune. Um, And that's when he started getting into the world of business. Um, They would, however, divorce in 1945. Arsenic and Old Lace finally had its premiere on September 1st, 1944. It received universally positive reviews and was a box office smash, grossing $4.8 million against that $1.2 million price tag. (laughs) Studio execs are like wiping the sweat off their brow. Like, oh God, thank God. So strangely enough, this classic film has no HD release. Um, There's no Blu-ray. It's not streaming anywhere. Um, The most recent DVD was in 2010. Um, It's currently only available as like a standard definition rental in the U.S., uh, though it has shown up on the Criterion channel from time to time. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will share our thoughts on Arsenic and Old Lace from 1944, directed by Frank Capra. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Arsenic and Old Lace from 1944, directed by Frank Capra. Ben, you said you had seen this before? Yeah. Uh, So what are your thoughts coming to it now, after seeing all of, like, these other horror movies? Sure. There are things that work about this movie. I can certainly see why it was popular. I can see why the play was popular. You can also definitely see the influence that this has had on subsequent things for years although it does exist in a continuum with like other old dark house horror comedies Mm -hmm. i think um so that's important to acknowledge but there are definitely things that don't work about it or that like at least triggered my director brain as i was watching it where i was like oh i would have done that differently uh what did you think of it sarah so i mentioned in the first half how My mom loves this movie, and we were going to watch it, and I couldn't stand it. Um, I could stand it a little bit more. Ooh. (laughs) I would not choose to watch this movie again. Okay. Um, Like, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, And I did do a little chuckle here and there. My favorite parts are probably the Jonathan Brewster horror movie parts sure that's fair they play those parts a little straighter oddly enough um i really like peter laurie in this he's doing a very good job yeah i did enjoy peter laurie i did enjoy carrie grant's expressions Mm. but overall this movie i just again felt the urge of just being like okay let's just like sit down and breathe (laughs) and you one by one you explain to me what's going on (laughs) Please breathe like the I don't want to say anxiety, but the like 
intensity of like Cary Grant's reactions to things just gets me so like tense in myself and there's no release for me almost. So part of that is like the point, right? That it's this building and building and building like zany, crazy atmosphere. I have a question because I'm very curious. Mm -hmm. You like the movie Clue. Yes. What's the difference between this and that in terms of that? Because Clue is also people just being like, for like 90 minutes. So, and like running around. And it's, it's very much like you would not have the movie Clue without this movie in terms of like the running around the house and the like running gags where every time someone says X, Y happens and the kind of like zany, you know, super hyped up energy where like, you know, that movie ends with like Tim Curry just running around the house being like, and then this, and then then over here. And like, so why does this movie have this effect on you? But like clue does not. I think because we are in the same room the entire time. Mm, Interesting. In clue, you're kind of moving from room to room. People get split up. So it's like a little bit different. Um, and it's like a, when people move to a different room or something, it's almost like a chance to breathe. Whereas like in here, we're all in one spot and it's not even like misunderstanding after misunderstanding. It's like, uh, I don't know, just, just call the police guy. <laughs> like, so, ugh. um, so there's a few differences between this and the play. I mentioned in the context setting that one of them is that the play ends with them poisoning Mr. Witherspoon Mm -hmm. at the uh, asylum at the end of the story. The other difference is the famous line at the end of the play is, I'm not a Brewster, I'm a bastard, Mm. Uh, which is, I'm not a Brewster, I'm the son of a sea cook in the movie. Um, So you can see why like that doesn't work as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We do occasionally get out of the living room into like the cemetery outside and like shots here and there that are like we go into the kitchen at one point. We kind of go into this drawing room at one point and we do sort of get hints of the cellar. But definitely um, we don't really move around the house that much. The stage play origin is very clear. But I almost uh, one of my problems with this is actually that they needed to either really expand out and really actually show us the seller or, you know, other places, or I think it needed to lean in to its stage play origins a bit more. And I can kind of go into more detail about that. But I do think that you and I have probably some of the same problems with this movie. Mm-hmm. I think the, for me, the movie eventually works. It, it eventually gets around to working. Yeah. My biggest problems with this movie are closer to the start of the film than yeah. the end of the film. And they're all kind of interrelated. Like I have five different notes about this movie and they're all like very intertwined with one another. Sure. I think some of the comedy doesn't work for me. Mm. Like, Oh, we're supposed to laugh every time Teddy charges up yeah. the staircase. We're supposed to be like laughing along. I guess when Cary Grant is pretending to be insane at the end, I just find it confusing. Mm. <laughs> like I said, like 
I liked when it leaned a bit more into the horror aspects of it. And that's not me poo-pooing like the genre of comedy this is. It just felt like it had more to say or to do when it was like it, it, it was holding your attention better is what it was right like yeah. there was there was a it was when it was closer to the precipice of that like razor's edge of like horror comedy mm-hmm. i felt it worked a lot better than when it leaned too far into just straight comedy so i think the biggest issue with this movie it's it's really hard too because like there are things in this movie kinds of comedy that work for me in other movies that don't work for me in this movie, like the Teddy Roosevelt charge bit. Like there's plenty of movies I can think of where there's a gag like that, where like, Oh, every time this happens, that happens. And it's supposed to be funny by virtue of the repetition where like the audience knows it's coming kind of thing. And it doesn't work for me here as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, I'm trying to figure out like why, right? I think the biggest overarching thing is Frank Capra was the wrong director for this movie. Okay. I think that he's not suited to the material. I agree with you that it, it, the closer it gets to the horror stuff, the better it gets. And what it needed was a more macabre director. Mm-hmm. Um, it needed someone who was willing to be a little bit more subversive with the material. It needed to feel a little bit to me, a little bit more um, transgressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like what happens here is Capra plays, it's weird, right? Because he plays Jonathan Brewster, like kind of understated, but everything yeah. else in the movie is like way over the top. And it feels like he's making a lot of things in the movie super over the top to um, like cushion the blow of the macabre, distasteful nature of the comedy. But I feel like you need to lean into that. And I don't really know who in the 1940s would have been like super well suited to that kind of thing off the top of my head. I mean, Hitchcock should have like made this movie, you know, like Hitchcock's sense of humor done a comedy. He's done movies that have comedic comedic elements. elements like, but his kind of like black humor. Yeah. Is what really this movie I think needed more of. Yeah. Like I think of, uh, there's an intro to Hitchcock presents where he's doing like exercises with a guillotine. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I think he would be better able to manage some of the tension. Um, rope is a great example of how he's able to manage tension of a body being like in a chest in the room. Yeah. I think that, you know, in a modern context, um, my mind goes to like Barry Sonnenfeld who directed the two Adams family movies. Sure. Like I do think that the Adams family owes a lot to arsenic and old lace in terms of like the kind of macabre comedy that's going on. Yeah. It's also kind of interesting to think how, um, both lean into the zany. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like the physical aspects of a comedic performance. But like, Capra is just so small town Americana that the problem is, is that the thing about the Adams family is they exist kind of in that world of Mm -hmm. like white picket fences and your neighbors and whatever, but they're kind of subversive and nothing in this movie feels like it's subverting things enough. Like everything outside the Brewster home is just like very normie normie. Yeah. The only way that it's subversive is the fact that uh, 
the two aunts are committing these murders as a charity to these poor, sad men. Right. So the problem with Capra is that he believes in America too much <laughs> because um, Kesselring, right? The playwright? Yeah. I read a thing once and, and like, who knows if this is just him like blowing smoke up his own ass after the fact, after it became popular and successful. But regardless, he once said that like, for him, the inspiration for the play was these old, old money, wealthy, like respectable families where it's like, oh, we came over on the Mayflower and like, we've been here forever and we're just the best in the neighborhood. And the fact that like, those kinds of families that always put on airs that they're better than everyone else um, always have like skeletons in the closet. Right. And this kind of idea that like rich, wealthy people who present themselves as like the bedrock upon which America was founded are often like you find out like, Oh yeah, like their wealth came from piracy or, or something. And that's sort of emblematic of like America as a whole being this kind of contrast between what it presents itself as and what it's actual, Truth is, right? There's a lot of bodies in America's cellar, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem I find with the movie, because Capra's directing it, is there's no willingness to engage with that subtext. Mm -hmm. And I know that Capra was like specifically looking to not have a message, but I think not engaging with that subtext takes away the teeth of the story a little bit too much and leaves you wondering like, why am I watching this movie? Yeah. I think, um, part of that is not just Capra's fault mm. because the play and the film as it has been written, um, and rewritten by Lindsay and Krauss takes away that teeth as well. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, this goes into like my next thing that I have a problem with, with this movie, which is the aunts. So like Can, <laughs> one thing real quick. Yeah. Um, there's a, a thing that my mom will do uh -huh. that my mom, she and I are alike in a lot of ways. And one thing is that we see something that we enjoy or we think is funny and we might like just pick that up as a mannerism. Uh -huh. And it's funny to us because we know that we are referencing something but no one else will understand it. And it just becomes a thing that you do. My mom absolutely does that little run to the door. Oh, the little the flouncing. Yes. That that she absolutely does. does that. Yeah. I found that like <laughs> so insufferable, <laughs> so insufferable. Absolutely does that. Yeah. And now I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> I know why she does that every time. She doesn't do it any other time. Yeah. That was really insufferable. Um, <laughs> So the thing about the aunts is the reason why that subtext is taken out, in my opinion, is because the idea that the aunts are outwardly respectable but are murdering people in the basement, weirdly enough, has less of an impact because it's exaggerated too much. Mm -hmm. The aunts are so nice to a comedic extent, right? So it's like the problem is, is the dramatic crux of the film and the story is based around the idea that... The aunts are really nice and uh, Mortimer loves them very much. And they're just these sweet old ladies and he doesn't want them. Presumably he doesn't want them to go to prison or like get the electric chair or something. And 
I think the whole thing is he's trying to throughout the whole movie get Teddy committed, presumably so that he can pin the blame on the murders on Teddy. Because otherwise, why is there this sudden huge rush for him to get Teddy committed if he just wants to keep the murders secret? Yeah. Now, the problem is, is that motivation gets sort of forgotten by the end, because at the end of the movie, he's desperately trying to get Teddy committed, but he's also trying to keep the bodies in the basement secret still. And it's like, well, then you could have just kept them secret, right? But it's it's clear that he doesn't want the aunts to go to prison or get the gas chamber. Uh, so he, he wants to protect them by putting Teddy away. So for that to work as motivation, in my opinion, we, the audience, should also not want to see the aunts go to prison. But how do you accomplish that? Yeah. Because they're fucking murdering people and sticking them in the basement. And there's a few different ways you can play the aunts. Um, you can play them as essentially being like, like weirdly senile. Like you can play their thing where they're like, Oh, we're providing a service. Cause these are just some lonely old men. And these are like mercy killings. Like we're putting down we're, it's euthanasia, you know, yeah. You can play that as straight, like you can play that as a genuine motivation, in which case they're just kind of baddie. Or you could play them as being much more sinister. Yeah, like uh, I kept thinking about Jonathan Swift's An Indecent Proposal. Right. That would take away a lot of the comedic element of this film and the play. Um, But I think that that would work better. Yeah, so you could play them as more sinister in which case Mortimer looks kind of like an idiot for wanting to protect them. But then you could play Mortimer more innocent if you wanted to go that route. That's Mm -hmm. how you would do that. You'd make them more sinister and him more innocent. And it would still work with his goal of wanting to get Teddy out because he wouldn't want Teddy, who is not sane, um, get him protected by being in the sanitarium. Yeah. The way that this movie goes with the aunts is it makes their good side, I'll call it, also comedic because it it cranks it up to such a, a caricatured extent where they're flouncing about the house and they're just the nicest, sweetest little old biddies that you ever did meet. And I feel like the shock is supposed to be finding out that these like nice old ladies in the house are killing people. And part of this might be like a 80 years has passed kind of problem where if you gave me a story and you were like, hey, so there's these two sweet old women who live together alone in a house, I'd be like, ah, so who have they murdered? Mm -hmm. Like even without knowing that that's from Arsenic and Old Lace, I feel like that's where anyone's thoughts would go now. My thought was since you didn't say that they were were related, Uh uh, that they were gay. Yeah, of course. They're just gal pals. Uh Um, (laughs) Uh-huh. So the thing is, though, is like, I feel like that whole thing, like it's almost too much of a cliche now for that idea that it's a surprise to really work. But it's a famous play. Like, I don't think anyone coming in to see the movie would have been surprised. It's the premise. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't quite work with me. So the biggest problem with the aunts for me is, are we supposed to like them? Because if we're supposed to like them, then they need to be like the Adams family, right? In which case, the people they murder need to be bad people. 
Yeah. It needs to be like, oh, they're door-to-door salesmen and like, um, you know, like... <laughs> Apologies to any door-to-door salespeople listening or, or, to this podcast. Yeah, or like, you know, um, they need to be the kind of people where the audience is like, oh yeah, those people are annoying. As it is, um, the people who they are murdering are vagrants. Yes, yes. From the aunt's point of view, it's supposed to be like, oh, no one will miss them. You know, we're just sort of like, doing them sad. a favor. They don't have any family left. But they like, don't that's have a actually home. super cruel. Super um, cruel, super classist. Yes. And so if we're supposed to like the aunts, some of this works a bit better, but I don't think the movie does enough to make us like the aunts because what's supposed to be likable about them? Mm-hmm. That they're sweethearts? Like, I... I don't like them because like, like they're so treacly sugar sweet at the start of the movie. Like I immediately dislike them. Um, and that's saying something because Ben likes his sugar. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but like, I will say speaking to like cliches and stereotypes that I did have a thought watching this time around where I was like, Oh, this is why Sabrina, the teenage witch has two spinster aunts. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. One's a little more rotund. The other one's a little bit more um, like straight and narrow. Like, yeah, I mean, that's your classic comedy pairing. <laughs> um, one thing that I did like about the aunts, mm. um, besides being able to trace certain things that my mom does nah. to this movie, is throughout the film, the play, and in the dialogue, you get hints of like their backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember which aunt is which. So Aunt Blondie, mm-hmm. um, she wears like high neck collars yeah. and Jonathan uh, says something along the lines like, oh yeah, you're still wearing those because of the like acid burn from when grandpa's laboratory spilled over or whatever. Yeah. And through other references, it's made clear that Aunt Blondie is uh, someone who had helped in the laboratory. Mm-hmm. Grandpa isn't around anymore. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of put together that he's dead and he was a mad scientist and yeah. she was his assistant. And this is the life of the family that a mad scientist leaves behind. Sure. And that was a very interesting thought to me. Yeah. There's some like ideas of, um, not that the movie would really call it this. Um, cause this wasn't a buzzword back in 1944, the way it is now, but like generational trauma, right? Sure. Um, the movie expresses this more in the more, um, contemporary idea in the 1940s of um uh mental illness being hereditary right exactly like it's explicit that's why it's a twist when at the end um that's why it's mortimer turns out he's adopted yeah that's why it's a happy ending for him because it's like oh i don't need to be worried about passing this on so i can go marry elaine right yeah um so yes in the context of the movie it's hereditary insanity but nowadays we would look at that as like generational trauma and it's clear that like grandpa was not great. So it has those kind of connections for me to like the old dark house in that way. Mm-hmm. And then like even um, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre in terms of like the family with the intergenerational problems. Sure. The thing is, is like if we wanted to go more into horror, we would go into grandpa's um, laboratory and find him like, preserved and mummified in like a wheelchair or something right you could go you <laughs> the could, light swinging overhead yeah yeah you could go more <laughs> horror with this right and Absolutely. i i feel like that would play a little bit better um capra's sentimentality holds the movie back because 
I feel like we're supposed to like the aunts and they would be, there's a difference between enjoying a character and liking a character. Yeah. I do enjoy these characters. I'm with you that it feels a little too like sweet. They could have been a little bit more like, okay. My favorite stuff with the aunts is near the beginning of the movie when it's like, they're kind of just like gossiping about poisoning people in the same tone as you would about like your latest recipe or something. Yeah. That stuff's funny. There could have been more of that, like more of an awareness that they're bad people. The movie keeps treating them like that. They're like maybe they're ditzy. like they're just sort of ditzy and they don't realize what they're doing. Um, and that's a little bit too much. Yeah. Cause that's what makes me feel like we're supposed to like them. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I draw a line between liking and enjoying is When you like a character, you don't want something bad to happen to them. So we don't want the aunts to go to prison or whatever. You can enjoy a character and also want something bad to happen to them. And really, the best villains are that. Um, A lot of people really enjoy a good villain because they're very fun on the movie screen. But you also want to see them get their just desserts. And it feels like this movie doesn't think the audience will want to see the ants get their just desserts, which is weird. Especially in the context of the Hayes Code. Sure. Because they have to get their just desserts. Yeah. Um, I can't remember some contemporary movies to 1941 when this was being made. And then, of course, 1944 when it was released. Mm. But they took such great pains in Arsenic and Old Lace to make sure we didn't see the body. Yeah. To make sure we didn't see any anything that would make us feel squeamish or uncomfortable. Yeah. They really are trying like all the scenes where we might see a body basically take place in the dark. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, to be fair, there's something to be said for the idea that, like, keeping things in the dark and shadowy make them more disturbing. But yes, there was a definite feeling that, like, Capper wants to keep this light. He wants to keep us laughing. He doesn't want us to think about the reality of this too much. And I think the movie would play better if it engaged with that stuff more directly like to me it would be funnier if like at one point like mr hoskins like arm was hanging out the side of the window seat that kind of thing right rather than the fact that you just never see him speaking of which blocking yes so this is what i'm talking about when i say like the movie could have leaned into the play thing a bit more or it could have leaned into being a movie more and instead it's this like weird halfway point Mm mm-hmm Let's explain blocking. Sure. So like the positioning of actors and props and scenery within a scene. Um, You will also hear this referred to as like mise-en-scene. But basically just like, you know, if somebody is upstage, downstage, you know, camera right, camera left, where people are in relation to one another, right? And this movie, you know, there's a gag about it with Cary Grant's back being turned to Jonathan. I know I keep calling him by his actor's name, but it's whatever. Talking about uh, a play he saw where a character gets tied up and doesn't even notice the guy's sneaking around behind him. And that's what's happening here. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of like meta jokes about plays and about that take advantage of that blocking stuff. They do that gag twice. Yeah. um, Even. So the thing about a play, and I know that this might seem obvious, but you can see everything that's happening all the time. Your eyes are the camera and you're kind of deciding what to cut between as you look around the stage, but there's things happening all the time. 
So gags like Peter Laurie trying to sneak out while everything else is happening, you would just have that character trying to sneak out while everything else is happening. Or the mm-hmm. gag where Cary Grant's like so fed up with everything and exhausted and doesn't care anymore that he's just sitting on the stairs being like, yeah, whatever, go fight. And like lighting himself a cigarette and being really calm and casual while this big fight's happening. In the movie, we keep the camera on Carrie in like something of a close-up, and we hear the sounds of the fight happening elsewhere, and we can occasionally see like a table leg get thrown across the screen or something. And that's kind of the way they're playing the gag here. In the play, we'd be seeing all of that fight happening, and then we just see like, you know, Mortimer sitting on the stairs having his cigarette just totally done with things. Those jokes play differently based on how you block them. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff with like people sneaking up on one another when you have a gag that is based on like a character in the foreground is doing one thing and a character in the background is doing another those gags work really well because those things are happening simultaneously and we can see both of them at the same time you don't generally do stuff like that in film in film if there's some new element coming into the scene we cut to it as we do here, we cut to Peter Laurie coming down the stairs and we cut away from what's going on elsewhere. That fucks the comedy. <laughs> the blocking, the gags don't work that way. You could have staged everything and shot it more like a play. And to be fair, there's a lot of criticism that gets thrown at films when they're too locked off like that, right? Yeah, Dracula. Right. But. There's so many, um, for whatever reason, British TV comedies are what are like coming to mind right now, like Blackadder and stuff like that, <laughs> where like you have stuff like that, where there's characters entering and leaving in the background and sneaking around while like some main character in the foreground is totally oblivious. And it's funny because you can see both of them at the same time. When you start cutting and breaking those things up, the, the audience... pacing gets fucked. Yes, the pacing gets fucked. Also, the audience like intellectually knows what the gag is, but you miss the actual humor mm-hmm. because the way that comedy works is it's based on the unexpected and it's based on ironies and it's based on, you know, the audience thinks one thing's going to happen and then something else happens or uh, the characters think something's going to happen, but the audience knows something else is going to happen. And especially with some of those running gags of like the charge and the, um, the clock and like all those little things, those play really well in their repetitions. If after the first time they happen, they're happening while other things are happening Yes, because the audience knows they're going to happen. And so they just are an additional element of the chaos where like you picture it in a play. If you had, these characters arguing in the living room and you're watching them. And then like, someone's like, Teddy, go upstairs to your room. And then they're continuing to argue. And you're like, no, you shouldn't have done that, bro. And then he's like, charge and goes up the stairs. Um, It's part of the chaos. And you knew it was going to come when you decide to cut to it and do it as its own shot. Every single time it stops the pace of the movie for every single iteration of that gag. And that's what makes it feel like a slog right because you're you're making each gag its own shot every time and once you've done one of those recurring gags one time you should really be playing it as background yeah so the movie is 118 minutes huh that's a little long 
Yeah. Well, it felt longer. Mm. Yeah. Um, after we finished watching, I turned to Ben and was like, how long was that? And he's like, four hours? <laughs> like, yeah. That's So I think that kind of points to why this movie feels like it slogs, um, but also why Clue doesn't, because mm-hmm. it doesn't do that. Yeah. You need to keep your pace up. And in a comedy like this, that means letting things happen simultaneously and allowing the audience kind of the freedom to decide what to pay attention to. And yeah. because, and that was never really going to happen in this movie because um, Capra is a very traditional continuity, golden age Hollywood director. And so he's going to do everything in, you know, master shot, medium shot, close up, new person enters the scene, master shot, medium shot, close up, you know, and like, he's going to shoot it like that. And I think this movie could have been better handled maybe by someone like Hitchcock who could have played the macabre stuff more extremely, or it would have been well shot by, um, I was thinking Michael Curtiz. Sure. Cause he's done horror. Yes. And I was, I was also thinking just like directors who work on like, like Marx brothers movies and stuff. Like, like, sure, being able to handle the zaniness that's going on on screen and giving everything its own space to be going on simultaneously. Right, exactly. Like, it's not so much... Like, I know Capra can do comedy, but it's not this kind of comedy. Like, this needs, like, Howard Hawks. Sure. Not Frank Capra. Um, I will say, uh, definitely feeling the loss of Karloff in yes. this movie... But that's not to say that Raymond Massey isn't doing a good job. He's almost doing sort of like a mix of him and Karloff together. Mm. There were certain lines, the way that he would say them. It felt like Karloff's cadence and rhythm. Uh, And then also the way he walks. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but Karloff holds his hands weird. Yeah. And Raymond Massey holds his hands weird here. I think he does a good job, but I think that... Jonathan is a problem in this movie because Mm -hmm. they treat him more seriously than everything else. And you either need to treat everything that seriously and let the gag be that the audience is laughing at the situation, but the characters aren't or everything needs to be a joke. Um, Yeah. I, I think you're really hitting on to something because yes, Jonathan himself is treated seriously but then he's also what brings in references to like grandpa's laboratory, the acid burns, um, the way he would torture Mortimer as oh, a yeah. kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, holy shit. Yeah. This is fucked up. Yeah. And there needed to be, you either needed to treat everything seriously or not. Yeah. Um, and you could still have it be a comedy while treating everything seriously. Um, in fact, I really like comedies like that where airplane where where all the <laughs> where the characters are not aware they're in a comedy and i'm going to get to that actually when i want to talk about cary grant but okay. to continue on with jonathan yeah the thing about his character if is if you want his character to be funny it needs to be boris karloff the joke yes. doesn't work if it's not <laughs> boris karloff you can put him in makeup to make his face look like boris karloff and they do yeah you were telling me about this off 
Mike. Mm. Uh, Warner Brothers didn't have the rights to the likeness of Karloff, yeah, so they he, couldn't really do him. Yeah, um, so he was under contract with Columbia at the time. So Warner's doesn't have likeness rights to him. And to even use his name was like a little iffy. And really the thing was like, they got away with it. It's it's the yeah. kind of thing where like, if Karloff had wanted to sue, he could have. He just didn't because that wouldn't really make any sense for anyone in this situation. Yeah, so the look that Jonathan has is what I would say Karloff adjacent. Yeah, it's reminiscent enough that the gag of people being like, you look like Boris Karloff kind of works, but it doesn't land nearly as strongly as it does when it's literally Boris Karloff, right? Yeah. Like, and he's freaking out at people saying he looks like Boris Karloff. Like, that would land so much funnier if it was Boris Karloff. Yeah, and- I think it would work so well, too, because um, he has such a, a specific way of speaking. Yes. And it would be so different from anyone else speaking. Correct. But yet they're able to recognize that that's Jonathan's voice. Right. So... Yeah, it it would have been a lot funnier and it the whole character kind of starts to break down if it's not Boris Karloff. And even the fact that like Jonathan's the one who's actually a serious threat plays into the joke of it being Boris Karloff because Boris Karloff before Arsenic and Old Lace was a horror actor, not a comedy actor. And so like literally an actor from a different genre has come in to like invade your comedy and now everything's serious now kind of thing. Right. And that then becomes part of the joke. Um, So yeah, I think Jonathan really doesn't work without it being Karloff. Like if I was to stage this play today, I would like get the guy who uh, plays Freddy Krueger. Well, it's a little late for that. Oh, oh, get the guy who plays Candyman. Sure. You could do that. I mean, it's also a little late for that, but like the example I was going to go with was Brad Dorif, who is, uh, gosh, if, if I showed you a picture, you would know who he is. He's like a psychopath and everything. Um, he was the crewman on Star Trek Voyager who oh, was a oh, murderer. Oh, he's like this like long, slicked back hair. Yeah, and kind he, of looks like uh, um, like an off-brand James Spader. I mean, okay. <laughs> I never thought of him like that. But, <laughs> but like, you know, he's in Alien Resurrection. He's in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's in yeah. Exorcist 3. Like, he's always super, super fucking creepy in everything. Mm-hmm. Like, I would literally change the dialogue to be like, you look like Brad Dorif or, or something. Um, I guess it would have to be someone even more modern now who's like kind of known for being like having like real creepy vibes. Oh, um, Jared Leto. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, that gag works if it's literally the dude is yeah. the thing. So that's four of my five problems with this movie. <laughs> So now we got to talk about Cary Grant. Yeah, um, he is ridiculously tall. Yeah. <laughs> Just, it doesn't help that the aunts are on the shorter side, too. Right. So he has he to literally like... has to bend over to yeah. talk to them. <laughs> the problem with Cary Grant in this movie is emblematic of the problem with the movie in general. Mm. It's it's very much a synecdoche. Um, but I don't feel bad tearing into Cary Grant about this movie because the problem I have with his performance is the problem he has with his performance. Yeah, like that's he, fair. He doesn't like his performance in this movie. Um, so he gets better as the movie goes on, which isn't actually like he doesn't change. Actually, that's the problem, though. So like he's the normal one. Yeah. His arc in the movie should be to start 
normal and then slowly ramp up with like everything happening so that by the end when he's like running around and being like i have buddies in the the attic like i'll come and show like let me show you like that needs to feel like the peak of a uh, like rising slope that we've been on the whole movie up to that point. And instead, Capra like starts him there. Like the movie starts with him like running around, zip zapping everywhere because he's trying to keep this marriage of his secret. And then like he gets to the ant's place and like immediately when he finds the body, he's going like whoop, whoop, whoop. And like doing these like mugging to the camera things. Like there's so many shots that are Cary Grant looking right at the camera being like, can you believe this shit? And like, <laughs> um, you know, talking about the characters not knowing they're in the comedy, like. Cary Grant's character knows he's in a movie basically um, because he keeps mugging and he mugs through the whole damn movie and he starts at like like he starts there and so there's just like nowhere for him to go which means that the movie has no arc and has no build like in a zany comedy like this what you kind of want is the feeling of In the Hall of the Mountain King, Mm -hmm. where we start out at a normal pace, and it's like just a little bit of something here and there, and what's that, and oh my God, and then we keep going, keep going, and we keep adding and adding and adding and adding things so that by the end, when everyone's shouting and running around... It feels earned that we got there. Yeah. We don't feel that here because we start at zany and just kind of stay there the whole movie. And that sustained zaniness is why it feels super long, why it feels super draining, why it feels exhausting to watch. Because Cary Grant's reaction to the first body should be horror. If you play his emotions as realistic to start... And then contrast them with like the aunts being like, well, of course there's 13 bodies buried in the basement. No, dear, there's 12. Yeah. If you play it against that, there's a contrast and contrast gets you comedy. Instead, the contrast they're playing is that the aunts are so calm while he's like, and so to me, that's in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. He needs to build to that and he needs to be ready to like sign himself into the asylum by the end of the movie not at the very start of the movie i agree that that's a failing of the movie uh but that as we've kind of said like that was the premise that capra signed up for right yeah and like the movie makes this decision quite up front where we start with like a baseball game where then people start fighting and then meanwhile across town yeah yeah the movie starts with that fucking brooklyn dodgers baseball game that just like turns into a huge brawl that has nothing to do with the rest of the story is not in the play it's just there to be like people from brooklyn am i right yeah because the rest of it is set in brooklyn but we don't need that especially because the cops walking by are like oh brooklyn this street's the best place in brooklyn because it's so calm yeah you need to start in the real world and then build up to the crazy And this movie just sort of starts at crazy and then goes, okay, cool. That's what the whole movie is. And so you have nowhere to go. You just, you just have nowhere to go. Maybe that's why I liked the 
horror bits because mm. it was something different. Yes, exactly. You need a change in momentum. It, this is true of any genre. Like this is true of horror. Like if your horror movie is nothing but gruesome violence from Jump Street, like by the end of the movie, I'm tired and I don't care that her fingernails being peeled off or something because I saw a dude's like skin get opened up 20 minutes ago. Like, you know, a good example of this being done better is ready or not. Yeah. Which is the same basic premise. Someone's about to marry into a family that they weren't aware was full of psychopathic murderers. Um, Ready or not goes into some very different places by the end, but you kind of need that. You need it to start out like, Oh, that's odd that there's this little subtle thing that's wrong. And then build on that as we go. Certainly, if you were to do this movie now, Elaine would have more to do rather than just yeah. being yet another kind of running gag, right? Like she's a basically the equivalent of Teddy yelling charge or the taxi cab driver who's waiting the whole movie. She's just another thing to kind of occasionally pop in and make Cary Grant go, oh, no, no, not, not, not now. Um, and I think in a modern movie, you'd maybe make her more of a POV character, uh, you know, Mortimer, like, even though Mortimer doesn't know that his aunts are murdering people, he knows that his brother Teddy is crazy and that his brother Jonathan is homicidally crazy. So he already knows that there's, like, things that are wrong with his family. And that should have been played more as, like, yeah, we're just going to stop in to say hi to the aunts. And then we're going to Niagara Falls. You know, we're not going to stay here long because I don't want you to poke around and find out how weird my family is, right? Yeah. Like, there needed to be more of that energy. And that would have been a better energy to start the movie off with as well, because it foreshadows that things are going to be weird and gives Cary Grant maybe a reason to be anxious about things that's more tied in with the fucking plot of the movie than his whole like, Oh, I've gone my whole life saying that I hate marriage or whatever, which is such a weird gag that stops being relevant after like five minutes and has nothing to do with him being like a drama critic either. Yeah. It's weird. And it's like, you know, so I need it to be secret because, you know, nobody should know I'm getting married because I'm down on marriage. And then that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, his anxiety should be coming from the fact that, like, his family is full of nut bars. So that's the thing. The, the movie doesn't have anywhere to go. It just starts at the highest setting it can be at and and doesn't change. And And for me, that's definitely, like, why it just doesn't work yeah like i said i did have a couple chuckles here mm -hmm. and there but oh, by yeah. and large um probably will not choose to watch this movie again i am sorry mom i think like for me the chuckles that i had were the more understated parts absolutely like like peter laurie kind of like muttering things under his breath or like little asides or lines that like aren't being shouted yeah. Um, are what worked for me better. Um, there's some clever dialogue occasionally. Most of the dialogue isn't actually that clever or funny. Where you're supposed to be deriving comedy is kind of from like the zaniness. But I definitely laugh more at witty dialogue than I do at like zaniness. Because um, I find zaniness a little tiring. tiring. And you know, and so that's the thing is like, is Cary Grant's performance bad? No. Because... He's good by the end of the movie because the performance that he's being directed to give is Matches the one... Matches everything else going on. At the end of the movie, yeah. 
It's just that he shouldn't have started there. And that's Capra's fault, not Cary Grant's. Yeah, Cary Grant is giving what he's been directed to do and he's doing it well. It's just the wrong place for it. Yeah, the movie hasn't been built around it properly. Yeah. Um, because like go out and watch His Girl Friday and compare this to that and the way that like His Girl Friday also ends in complete pandemonium, but it like earns it. It sets up every piece and it builds to it, you know? He also speaks just as fast. Yes. To the point where I was like, whoa, give me a second to like catch up with you, bud. Yeah. I mean, I think that was like, what was it? It was like with His Girl Friday, it was like a thing where like the script was um, like twice as long as it should have been. And they were like, okay, just talk fast. (laughs) That is literally what happened. Well, folks, hopefully uh, Hopefully, you enjoyed this. Yeah. Hopefully you don't poison our wine because (laughs) we didn't like Arsenic and Old Lace. I know it's a fan favorite. Um, but you know, people can have different opinions. I would like to see this movie like remade maybe by like a more macabre director who could handle that. Give me Ari Aster's Arsenic and Old Lace. (laughs) Maybe not Ari Aster, (laughs) but, but yes, I, I think there's like definitely a way you could do this now where I think it would work a little bit more. Thanks so much for listening and thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast for voting on this movie. If you would like to vote on our horror adjacent bonus episodes each and every month, you can do so by signing up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the five and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content like cut audio from past episodes, Sarah's gothic retrospective write-ups, reviews, essays, all kinds of cool stuff over at patreon.com slash podcast. We will be back to our regularly scheduled programming, but until then, stay safe and spookums. <laughs> See you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.